Section 15 of Volume 1F of History of England from the Invasion of Julius Caesar to the Revolution of 1688. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Jim Dennison. History of England from the Invasion of Julius Caesar to the Revolution of 1688 by David Hume. Volume One F, Section Fifteen, Chapter Sixty Five, Part Six. No grievance was more alarming, both on account of the secret views from which it proceeded, and the consequences which might attend it, than the declaration of indulgence. A remonstrance was immediately framed against that exercise of prerogative. The king defended his measure. The commons persisted in their opposition to it and they represented that such a practice, if admitted, might tend to interrupt the free course of the laws, and alter the legislative power, which had always been acknowledged to reside in the king and the two houses. All men were in expectation with regard to the issue of this extraordinary affair. The king seemed engaged in honor to support his measure, and in order to prevent all opposition, he had positively declared that he would support it. The commons were obliged to persevere, not only because it was dishonorable to be foiled, where they could plead such strong reasons, but also because, if the king prevailed in his pretensions, an end seemed to be put to all the legal limitations of the Constitution. It is evident that Charles was now come to that delicate crisis which he ought at first to have foreseen, when he embraced those desperate counsels and his resolutions, in such an event, ought long ago to have been entirely fixed and determined. Besides his usual guards, he had an army encamped at Blackheath, under the command of Mariscal Schomburg, a foreigner, and many of the officers were of the Catholic religion. His ally, the French king, he might expect, would second him, if force became requisite for restraining his discontented subjects, and supporting the measures which, by common consent, they had agreed to pursue. But the king was startled when he approached so dangerous a precipice as that which lay before him. Were violence once offered, there could be no return, he saw, to mutual confidence and trust with his people. The perils attending foreign succors, especially from so mighty a prince, were sufficiently apparent, and the success which his own arms had met with in the war was not so great as to increase his authority or terrify the malcontents from opposition the desire of power likewise which had engaged charles in these precipitate measures had less proceeded we may observe from ambition than from love of ease strict limitations of the constitution rendered the conduct of business complicated and troublesome and it was impossible for him without much contrivance and intrigue to procure the money necessary for his pleasures or even for the regular support of government. When the prospect, therefore, of such dangerous opposition presented itself, the same love of ease inclined him to retract what it seemed so difficult to maintain, and his turn of mind, naturally pliant and careless, made him find little objection to a measure which a more haughty prince would have embraced with the utmost reluctance. That he might yield with the better grace, he asked the opinion of the House of Peers, who advised him to comply with the Commons. Accordingly, the King sent for the Declaration, 
and with his own hands broke the seals. The commons expressed the utmost satisfaction with this measure, and the most entire duty to his majesty. Charles assured them that he would willingly pass any law offered him, which might tend to give them satisfaction in all their just grievances. Shaftesbury, when he found the king recede at once from so capital a point, which he had publicly declared his resolution to maintain, concluded that all schemes for enlarging royal authority were vanished, and that Charles was utterly incapable of pursuing such difficult and such hazardous measures. The Parliament, he foresaw, might push their inquiries into those councils which were so generally odious, and the king, from the same facility of disposition, might abandon his ministers to their vengeance. He resolved, therefore, to make his peace in time with that party which was likely to predominate, and to atone for all his violences in favor of monarchy by like violences in opposition to it. Never turn was more sudden, or less calculated to save appearances. Immediately he entered into all the cobbles of the country party, and discovered to them, perhaps magnified, the arbitrary designs of the court in which he himself had borne so deep a share. He was received with open arms by that party, who stood in need of so able a leader, and no questions were asked with regard to his late apostasy. The various factions into which the nation had been divided, and the many sudden revolutions to which the public had been exposed, had tended much to debauch the minds of men, and to destroy the sense of honor and decorum in their public conduct. But the Parliament, though satisfied with the King's compliance, had not lost all those apprehensions to which the measures of the court had given so much foundation. A law passed for imposing a test on all who should enjoy any public office. Besides taking the oaths of allegiance and supremacy, and receiving the sacrament in the established church, they were obliged to abjure all belief in the doctrine of transubstantiation. As the dissenters had seconded the efforts of the commons against the king's declaration of indulgence, and seemed resolute to accept of no toleration in an illegal manner, they had acquired great favor with the Parliament, and a project was adopted to unite the whole Protestant interest against the common enemy, who now began to appear formidable. A bill passed the commons for the ease and relief of the Protestant nonconformist, but met with some difficulties, at least delays, in the House of Peers. The resolution for supply was carried into a law, as a recompense to the king for his concessions. An act, likewise, of general pardon and indemnity was passed, which screened the ministers from all further inquiry. The Parliament probably thought that the best method of reclaiming the criminals was to show them that their case was not desperate. Even the remonstrance which the commons voted of their grievances may be regarded as a proof that their anger was, for the time, somewhat appeased. None of the capital points are there touched on. The breach of the Triple League, the French alliance, or the shutting up of the exchequer. The sole grievances mentioned are an arbitrary imposition on coals for providing convoys, the exercise of martial law, the quartering and pressing of soldiers, and they prayed that, after the conclusion of the war, the whole army should be disbanded. The king gave them a gracious, though an evasive answer, 
When business was finished, the two houses adjourned themselves. Though the king had receded from his declaration of indulgence, and thereby had tacitly relinquished the dispensing power, he was still resolved, notwithstanding his bad success both at home and abroad, to persevere in his alliance with France, and in the Dutch war, and consequently in all those secret views, whatever they were, which depended on those fatal measures. The money granted by Parliament sufficed to equip a fleet, of which Prince Rupert was declared admiral, for the Duke was set aside by the test. Sir Edward Sprague and the Earl of Ossory commanded under the Prince. A French squadron joined them, commanded by Detries. The combined fleets set sail towards the coast of Holland, and found the enemy lying at anchor within the sands of Schoenvelt. There is a natural confusion attending sea-fights, even beyond other military transactions. Derived from the precarious operations of winds and tides, as well as from the smoke and darkness in which everything is there involved. No wonder, therefore, that accounts of those battles are apt to contain uncertainties and contradictions, especially when delivered by writers of the hostile nations, who take pleasure in exalting the advantages of their own countrymen and depressing those of the enemy. All we can say with certainty of this battle is that both sides boasted of the victory, and we may thence infer that the event was not decisive. The Dutch, being near home, retired into their harbors. In a week they were refitted and presented themselves again to the combined fleets. A new action ensued, not more decisive than the foregoing. It was not fought with great obstinacy on either side, but whether the Dutch or the Allies first retired seems to be a matter of uncertainty. The loss in the former of these actions fell chiefly on the French, whom the English, diffident of their intentions, took care to place under their own squadrons, and they thereby exposed them to all the fire of the enemy. There seems not to have been a ship lost on either side in the second engagement. It was sufficient glory to de Ruyter that, with a fleet much inferior to the combined squadrons of France and England, he could fight them without any notable disadvantage, and it was sufficient victory that he could defeat the project of a descent in Zealand, which, had it taken place, had endangered, in the present circumstances, the total overthrow of the Dutch Commonwealth. Prince Rupert was also suspected not to favor the king's projects for subduing Holland, or enlarging his authority at home and from these motives he was thought not to have pressed so hard on the enemy, as his well-known valor gave reason to expect. It is indeed remarkable that during this war, though the English with their allies much overmatched the Hollanders, they were not able to gain any advantage over them, while in the former war, though often overborne by numbers, they still exerted themselves with the greatest courage, and always acquired great renown sometimes even signal victories. But they were disgusted by the present measures, which they deemed pernicious to their country. They were not satisfied in the justice of the quarrel, and they entertained a perpetual jealousy of their confederates, whom, had they been permitted, they would, with much more pleasure, have destroyed than even the enemy themselves. If Prince Rupert was not favorable to the designs of the court, he enjoyed as little favor from the court 
at least from the duke who though he could no longer command the fleet still possessed the chief authority in the admiralty the prince complained of a total want of everything powder shot provisions beer and even water and he went into harbor that he might refit his ships and supply their numerous necessities after some weeks he was refitted and he again put to sea the hostile fleets met at the mouth of the texel and fought the last battle which during the course of so many years these neighboring maritime powers have disputed with each other de ruyter and under him tromp commanded the dutch in this action as in the two former for the prince of orange had reconciled these gallant rivals and they retained nothing of their former animosity except that emulation which made them exert themselves with more distinguished bravery against the enemies of their country brankert was opposed to de Tries, de ruyter to prince rupert tromp to sprague it is to be remarked that in all actions these brave admirals last mentioned had still selected each other as the only antagonist worthy of each other's valor and no decisive advantage had as yet been gained by either of them they fought in this battle as if there were no mean between death and victory de Tries and all the french squadron except rear admiral martel kept at a distance and brankert instead of attacking them bore down to the assistance of de ruyter who was engaged in furious battle with prince rupert on no occasion did the prince acquire more deserved honor his conduct as well as valor shone out with signal lustre having disengaged his squadron from the numerous enemies with whom he was everywhere surrounded and having joined sir john chichley his rear admiral who had been separated from him he made haste to the relief of sprague who was hard pressed by tromp's squadron the royal prince in which sprague first engaged was so disabled that he was obliged to hoist his flag on board the st george while tromp was for a like reason obliged to quit his ship the golden lion and go on board the comet the fight was renewed with utmost fury by these valorous rivals and by the rear admirals their seconds ossery rear admiral to sprague was preparing to board tromp when he saw the st george terribly torn and in a manner disabled sprague was leaving her in order to hoist his flag on board a third ship and return to the charge when a shot which had passed through the st george took his boat and sunk her the admiral was drowned to the regret of tromp himself who bestowed on his valor the deserved praises prince rupert found affairs in this dangerous situation and saw most of the ships in sprague's squadron disabled from fight the engagement however was renewed and became very close and bloody the prince threw the enemy into disorder to increase it he sent among them two fire-ships and at the same time made a signal to the french to bear down which if they had done a decisive victory must have ensued but the prince when he saw that they neglected his signal and observed that most of his ships were in no condition to keep the sea long wisely provided for their safety by making easy sail towards the english coast the victory in this battle was as doubtful as in all the actions fought during the present war the turn which the affairs of the hollanders took by land was more favorable the prince of orange besieged and took Neerden 
and from this success gave his country reason to hope for still more prosperous enterprises montecuculli who commanded the imperialist of the upper rhine deceived by the most artful conduct the vigilance and penetration of turin and making a sudden march sat down before bonn the prince of orange's conduct was no less masterly while he eluded all the french generals and leaving them behind him joined his army to that of the imperialists bonn was taken in a few days several other places in the electorate of cologne fell into the hands of the allies and the communication being thus cut off between france and the united provinces lewis was obliged to recall his forces and to abandon all his conquests with greater rapidity than he had at first made them the taking of maestrich was the only advantage which he gained this campaign a congress was opened at cologne under the mediation of sweden but with small hopes of success the demands of the two kings were such as must have reduced the hollanders to perpetual servitude in proportion as the affairs of the states rose the kings sunk in their demands but the states still sunk lower in their offers and it was found impossible for the parties ever to agree on any conditions after the french evacuated holland the congress broke up and the seizure of prince william of furstenberg by the imperialists afforded the french and english a good pretence for leaving cologne the dutch ambassadors in their memorials expressed all the haughtiness and disdain so natural to a free state which had met with such unmerited ill-usage the parliament of england was now assembled and discovered much greater symptoms of ill-humor than had appeared in the last session they had seen for some time a negotiation of marriage carried on between the duke of york and the archduchess of innsbruck a catholic of the austrian family and they had made no opposition but when that negotiation failed and the duke applied to a princess of the house of modena then in close alliance with france this circumstance joined to so many other grounds of discontent raised the commons into a flame and they remonstrated with the greatest zeal against the intended marriage the king told them that their remonstrance came too late and that the marriage was already agreed on and even celebrated by proxy the commons still insisted and proceeding to the examination of the other parts of government they voted the standing army a grievance and declared that they would grant no more supply unless it appeared that the dutch were so obstinate as to refuse all reasonable conditions of peace to cut short these disagreeable attacks the king resolved to prorogue the parliament and with that intention he came unexpectedly to the house of peers and sent the usher to summon the commons it happened that the speaker and the usher nearly met at the door of the house but the speaker being within some of the members suddenly shut the door and cried to the chair to the chair while others cried the black rod is at the door the speaker was hurried to the chair and the following motions were instantly made that the alliance with france is a grievance that the evil counsellors about the king are a grievance that the duke of lauderdale is a grievance and not fit to be trusted or employed there was a general cry to the question to the question but the usher knocking violently at the door the speaker leaped from the chair and the house rose in great confusion 
During the interval, Shaftesbury, whose intrigues with the malcontent party were now becoming notorious, was dismissed from the office of Chancellor, and the great seal was given to Sir Heneage Finch, by the title of Lord Keeper. The test had incapacitated Clifford, and the white staff was conferred on Sir Thomas Osborne, soon after created Earl of Danby, a minister of abilities, who had risen by his parliamentary talents. Clifford retired into the country, and soon after died. The Parliament had been prorogued, in order to give the Duke leisure to finish his marriage, but the King's necessities soon obliged him again to assemble them, and by some popular acts he paved the way for the session, but all his efforts were in vain. The disgust of the Commons was fixed in foundations too deep to be easily removed. They began with applications for a general fast, by which they intimated that the nation was in a very calamitous condition. They addressed against the king's guards, which they represented as dangerous to liberty, and even as illegal, since they never had yet received the sanction of Parliament. They took some steps towards establishing a new and more rigorous test against popery, and what chiefly alarmed the court, they made an attack on the members of the cabal to whose pernicious counsels they imputed all their present grievances. Clifford was dead. Shaftesbury had made his peace with the country party, and was become their leader. Buckingham was endeavouring to imitate Shaftesbury, but his intentions were as yet known to very few. A motion was therefore made in the House of Commons for his impeachment. He desired to be heard at the bar, but expressed himself in so confused and ambiguous a manner as gave little satisfaction. He was required to answer precisely to certain queries which they proposed to him. These regarded all the articles of misconduct above mentioned, and among the rest the following query seems remarkable. By whose advice was the army brought up to overawe the debates and resolutions of the House of Commons? This shows to what length the suspicions of the House were at that time carried. Buckingham, in all his answers, endeavoured to exculpate himself and to load Arlington. He succeeded not in the former intention. The Commons voted an address for his removal. But Arlington, who was on many accounts obnoxious to the House, was attacked. Articles were drawn up against him, though the impeachment was never prosecuted. The King plainly saw that he could expect no supply from the Commons for carrying on a war so odious to them. He resolved, therefore, to make a separate peace with the Dutch on the terms which they had proposed through the channel of the Spanish ambassador with a cordiality which, in the present disposition on both sides, was probably but affected, but which was obliging, he asked advice of the Parliament. The Parliament unanimously concurred, both in thanks for this gracious condescension, and in their advice for peace. Peace was accordingly concluded. The honor of the flag was yielded by the Dutch in the most extensive terms. A regulation of trade was agreed to. All possessions were restored to the same condition as before the war. The English planters in Suriname were allowed to remove at pleasure, and the states agreed to pay to the king the sum of 800,000 patacoons, near 300,000 pounds. Four days after the Parliament was prorogued, the peace was proclaimed in London, 
to the great joy of the people. Spain had declared that she could no longer remain neuter, if hostilities were continued against Holland, and a sensible decay of trade was foreseen, in case a rupture should ensue with that kingdom. The prospect of this loss contributed very much to increase the national aversion to the present war, and to enliven the joy for its conclusion. There was in the French service a great body of English, to the number of ten thousand men, who had acquired honor in every action, and had greatly contributed to the successes of Lewis. These troops, Charles said, he was bound by treaty not to recall but he obliged himself to the states by a secret article not to allow them to be recruited. His partiality to France prevented a strict execution of this engagement. End of section 15, chapter 65, part 6. Recording by Jim Dennison. J-I-M-D-E-N-I-S-O-N, voice.com.